KPH 9:10 a.m. interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. I'm Dave Palmer, Executive Director, host of this program, and Cecil Anderson, the one and only, is uh, running the board today. Our North Texas assistant. Thanks for joining us. I am an author, uh, almost a two-time author, and I love, love, love interviewing authors of great books, and that's what we're going to do today. In fact, this is a type of book that I bet applies to almost everybody listening right now. Um, you probably either have somebody who you know and love who has left the Catholic faith, a child or somebody close to you, or perhaps you've left the Catholic faith and you're somebody who's mourning the fact. And so there is a wonderful book that has uh, just been released by Ascension Press. It's called What Would Monica Do? Of course, referring to St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. And the authors are Patty McGuire Armstrong and Roxanne Salonen. And let me give you a little bit more of information about these two because they are quite accomplished ladies before we get into the heart of the conversation. Uh, Patty Armstrong hosts the TV show called Ladies of Another View. In addition to co-authoring What Would Monica Do with Roxanne, uh, Patty's books include Ascension's Amazing Grace series, Holy Hacks, and Big Hearted. Patty also writes for the National Catholic Register and other publications, and she's received several top awards for her writings at the National Catholic Register and from the National Catholic Press Association. Uh, and she and her husband, Mark, uh, raising their 10 children in North Dakota. Wow. Uh, Roxanne Salonen is an award-winning children's author and freelance writer. She covers religion for her city's daily newspaper, writes a pro-life column for her diocese, serves as a Catholic radio host and speaker, and contributes to CatholicMom.com, the National Catholic Register, and various other publications. Uh, she co-authored What Would Monica Do with Patty? And she and her husband, Troy, live in Fargo, North Dakota, and are raising and have raised five children. Okay, wow, it takes a lot of time just to get through your bios. <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome to both of you, and th- thanks for your time today. Thank you. And how cool that this is running, uh, at least the first time we're running it, on the feast day of St. Monica. So let me let me start, Patty, in asking, for those that never want to assume anything, I think most Catholics are familiar with St. Monica, but can you tell us a little bit about her, who she is, and uh, the, the significance of this particular topic? Yeah, she lived during the fourth century, and um, she had she was married to a pagan, Patricius. She had three children, and a lot of people just know her as the mother of Saint Augustine because he wandered from the faith. Uh, she prayed for him, cried, prayed for seventeen years, and he did convert. Not only did he convert, but he became one of the greatest theologians after Saint Paul. He's considered the greatest theologian, not just in the Catholic world but all of Christendom, because, it, you know, back then we were all one faith. And so we look to her, a lot of a lot of Catholic parents whose children have strayed from the faith turn to St. Monica and pray for her intercession. So not only did we pray for her, because Roxanne and I are in that situation, uh, not all of our children have left the faith, but some have. And so we look to St. Monica. And so in the writing of this book, it's called What Would Monica Do? Because... Her life is not so different from our very own in that. So to further answer your question, um, St. Augustine went away to school. He was very bright, came home with a girlfriend he wasn't married to and, uh, and a baby. So out of wedlock. 
And so thus began her 17-year journey of praying for his conversion. And boy, did she get it in spades. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. And uh, Patty, the people may say, well, how do we know all this about uh, Augustine and Monica? Is this all from Augustine's writings himself, like in Confessions? Is that where we know all this, or did Monica write anything herself? Yeah, it's from St. Augustine's writings. And uh, uh, St. Monica did not write anything, but... He referred to his mother and talked about all her years and and how he had left her behind. She wanted to follow him to Rome, and he um, and she she went to go catch a ship, and she left him. So he wasn't always the nicest son in the world, but she never gave up, and she just prayed relentlessly for him. And so we look to history and the writings of her son, which, by the way, are still in bookstores today. So when you think about 16 centuries of influencing. Christendom, her prayers had a big, big impact. I used to think 17 years, all those prayers, and she got one conversion out of it. <laughs> but then I listened to a homily because you know I want to like I want to convert I want to convert everybody every hour if I can. So um, I thought that was a, a lot of work just for one conversion. But then during a homily, it really uh, was made clear to me how could one person pray and impact all of Christendom in, so greatly that that conversion has has reached far and wide for 16 centuries. And so I started to look at it differently and realize once we put everything into God's hands, just wait, we're just going to stand back and let him do the rest. Yeah, amen. Roxanne, I guess the, the big question many people have is, especially if they have young children and they want to uh, try to avoid this problem when their children get older, is why why are you know young adults, why are college students, why are children of many good Catholic homes leaving the faith? Well, what would you say? You know, one of the first things I say is it is, is a post-Christian culture right now. Um, in in St. Monica's time, it was a pagan culture that was just barely turning Christian. And in our time, we had a solidly Christian culture that is really leaning more towards paganism. So we're kind of facing an opposite situation here. The, the bedrock of our, of our culture has shifted, and that's part of it. Uh, our children are going out into the world and facing those changes of the cultural tide. And as much as we have tried to lay out, you know, a firm, steady groundwork for, for their futures, as we're finding some of those forces, I would say, you know, the Internet, which has in some ways become a second parent that rises to priority sometimes with, with kids as they naturally break away from their parents. So there's a natural, you know, rebellion, I guess you could say, or just a separation from parents at this time. And, and as they're, they're, you know, entering this world that is so uh, anti-Christian, they're, they're going to face some of those challenges. And so, I mean, the best we can do is, is do our best to prepare. And then, you know, we don't, address so much younger parents because uh, we've kind of did all that we could do with our own children. Our hearts were very much wanting them to stay in the faith and and our hearts were, our lives were dedicated to that. And it didn't work out in each case. And it was shocking to us and heartbreaking. And through that, um, through our friendship and realizing that we both carry that sorrow, that's how this book came about. So ultimately it really is geared toward the older uh, family members, uh, and, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a parent. It could be a grandparent. Um, it could be a godparent. There's so many people that are affected by this. And really, we want to bring hope and consolation that 
there are things we can do, even if we're at the point where we're not having those conversations and we're not taking them by the hand so so closely, but there are still things that we can do. There's a lot we can do, and certainly God is with us, and He can do a lot, too. Yes, uh, the book is called What Would Monica Do? It is published by Ascension Press. You can go to ascensionpress.com slash Monica and uh, purchase a copy. This is about uh, how to we, we can use Monica as a, as a model for someone who was able to pray, so to speak, her son uh, back into the faith. And boy, uh, did he ever come back roaring for sure. And my guests are Patty Armstrong and Roxanne Salonen, the, the co-authors of this book. Uh, pa- Patty, you know, there's I guess two kinds of people that are listening right now. There might be one with young children saying, gosh, I don't want to make any mistakes. And then there's, you know, older parents who say, gosh, you know, half my kids are in, half are out. I don't know what I did right or wrong. Uh, What would your advice be as far as pushing, so to speak, religion or talking about religion or or even forcing it? And so, you know, you got to go to mass. You Hey, you got to pray the rosary tonight with the family. Uh, How much should we push? Thank you, Dave, because I was both of those parents. <laughs> I was that young parent. I, I want to say I homeschooled for 19 years, and then our kids went to Catholic school. And um, when when the children leave, and maybe younger parents don't want to make those mistakes, they're always looking for, well, what did they do wrong that I don't want to do wrong? And I was that parent. So I wanted to make sure I covered all my bases. And it's kind of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Oh, they pushed too hard. Oh, they didn't push enough. And in reality, we have priests in our diocese whose parents didn't even go to mass, didn't even practice the faith, and they're priests. And then you've got everything in between. Um, and so what, what we have to realize is to do our best, to do what we can, and celebrate the faith. It wasn't just force feeding. So we took our faith seriously. Uh, we even went to daily mass. I still go to daily mass. And some of our kids are very serious about their faith and wouldn't miss mass. And some are, haven't been practicing for a while. Um, and so what we have to realize is we can do our best and, and you're going to get good results. Let me tell you, my kids often went over and above. I was just thinking this morning, I had a, an 18 and a half year old son graduated from high school and he contacted my 21 year old son, the two brothers and he heard about two priests giving a retreat. And he said, hey, do you want to go? Because they both know these priests. They went and they loved it. So don't you think I thought, all is good, nothing to worry about here. Um, and so I didn't see this coming. Uh, and what I've come to realize is it's what we do is important. It does matter. But it's, it's not the final word. And we cannot control our children. We want to <laughs> in a good way. We want yeah. them. We, want, we just want to give them to God. And now instead of giving them to God, I'm saying, God, take them. I, I'm going to, and that's really what our book is about, is going deeper in our own faith. And we cover all the aspects of what, what does your family look like? You know, do you have, you know, maybe you might be divorced and you feel like, oh my gosh, now, now we're really sunk. We, what can we do now? We're divorced. But, you know, just keep giving everything to God, whatever your family looks like that he's going to have to make up for what is lacking because we're all lacking in some way, shape, or form. We may, Maybe we did too much. Maybe we didn't do enough. But in the end, it's not so much about what we did, but they have free choice. And now we can do a lot. We can go deeper with our prayers, with handing him over to God. We have a chapter called Worry is Not a Prayer because we have to surrender and feel like we our kids – 
wherever they are in their faith. They can't stop us from praying and sacrifice. And I watched Father Benedict Rochelle used to have a show on EWTN on Sunday nights, and I only mm-hmm. ever watched it one time for about 10 minutes. <laughs> but what I heard has stayed with me forever. He was talking about agnosticism and atheism, and somebody had called in and felt their prayers weren't being answered, and they'd prayed for a long time. And he said, God will administer the graces at which time they will do the greatest amount of good. And I also felt once when I was praying, thinking, well, okay, how long is this going to take? And trust me, I didn't think I'd have to wait very long. And I felt God saying to me that my prayers were net. And when they come back, they won't come back alone. Mm. And I, I really feel like God was saying that to me. I was in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I never thought of that before. And yet it gave me so much comfort. So I don't, I don't give God a deadline. I don't have the stopwatch going. I just keep giving everything over to God. I want it to happen in the next minute. Maybe it'll be on their deathbed. But all I know is that my job is just to keep praying and trusting in God and giving our children over to Him. Yeah, amen. Uh, let's talk, uh, Roxanne, about the, you know the spectrum of you know adult children, whether they're twenty or you know fifty, who have left the faith. And, you know, they're not all the same. Some may be just Protestant and living good lives and, you know, very happy in their, their, their new religion and not causing any problems. And then there are some that are just ap- outright contemptuous against the Catholic faith and want to argue and fight. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. what's, what's your advice for the different kind of children? And because it gets, it's really not a one size fits all approach, uh, even with Monica mm-hmm. as a model, is it? Absolutely. You know, we have some pretty strong willed children in our family, and they, they come from that naturally. Um, my husband and I both have kind of a competitive nature and, uh, and are pretty feisty on certain things, and so uh, our kids aren't like the laid-back type, and so in some ways, I guess there's not a big surprise in that there would be that little bit of rebellion there. Um, it, it is still hard. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of different situations out there, also different kinds of family situations. Uh, One of the things we talk about is unequally yoked. Uh, My husband's a convert, and so it took a little little bit of time for him to kind of catch up with, with, um, you know, the Catholic faith and, like, how to teach that. And some of those early years, he was still really learning a lot and wasn't as grounded in his faith. So there might be a little bit of, you know, lack there, some gaps there. Um, Again, like Patty said, we, we don't have to make up for all that lost time. We can start from where we're at today. But as far as the different people, I, when you were talking about that, I, I, I thought of something. My dad, who was going to be a priest at one time, ended up leaving the priesthood and marrying my mom, which I'm grateful for. I would her <laughs> otherwise. But um, he actually struggled with uh, alcoholism, and he left the faith for 35 years and came back. Before he died, He we had some really good years with him. He got to meet and play with and, and, and just lavish and being a grandfather. And he died a holy death, I would say, um, in the graces, in the sacraments. And um, it took 35 years. So I guess what I'm saying is patience, which isn't one of my virtues, is something we really, really, like Patty was saying, have to, to fall back on. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question about all the different personalities, but I can speak to my own situation that um, that patience is part of this and, and that even though it might seem impossible, Monica really gives us hope. And we have to, like Patty said, really, really lean hard on our own faith. This whole issue has humbled us. I mean, humility is involved. And, and my spiritual director told me recently that 
we all have to be humble before we meet the Lord. And sometimes that takes humiliation. And when your kids leave the faith, it can be a little bit, okay, a lot humbling. And so this is a starting point, though, for us to to be drawn closer into God's heart and to let him take over our lives more and more, as Patty also said about surrender. So um, there's there's a lot we can do, and it, yet it's also a grieving, and we need each other. We need community. We need to know that others are out there and that we're not alone. Yes. Uh, what Would Monica Do is the book. Ascension Press is the publisher, and the authors are Patty Armstrong and Roxanne Salonen, and we uh, are talking about this book and a situation many people find themselves in, loved ones, children. Uh, sometimes it's reversed. Sometimes it's the parents who have left and the children are faithful. So regardless of the circumstance, uh, this is a good book to read because you can model uh, after your, uh, one of the great saints of our church. Patty, uh it seems to be true that often the closer we are to somebody who's left the church, the less they'll listen. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, oh my God. to tell yeah. us about, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, other resources, you know, in, here in Catholic radio, we often say, Hey, just tell them about the frequency of the Catholic radio station and let the Catholic radio station do its work. We're a little biased, but what else would you say about maybe we're not the ones that are going to be able to do the heavy lifting? Uh, what are your suggestions in that regard? I love your question because St. Monica also encountered that situation. And um, just, I mean, we have St. Monica, there's a thread of what did she do in her life as inspiration throughout the book. But we have, we have stories and scripture and um, interviews with priests, even, even one on spiritual warfare and uh, comments from exorcists. So we have everything under the sun talking about forgiveness, you know, healing, um, and, and the culture and the complication of the church today. But, but to get to your question, yes, it may not be you. And so that helps you to, just a minute, if your kids aren't listening to you, now it's time to stop and just pray. Take, give them over to God. And St. Monica encountered that. St. Ambrose told her um, to, well, he met, okay, I wasn't St. Ambrose that told her this necessarily, but... Um, St. Augustine met St. Ambrose, and that really became very instrumental. And St. Monica was told to stop talking so much to her son about God and talk more to God about her son. Mm. And that's really the message of this book, is surrender. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have those conversations if they happen comfortably. And, you know, we're not saying don't ever talk to them, but if there's a wall going up, just stop because you're doing more harm than good by pushing. And I've been amazed over the years being in my situation when I interview people for the National Catholic Register or Sunday Visitor, you know, just so many different newspapers, articles that I write. I will often encounter, I'll find out that they, not everybody in their family is following. And sometimes these people are in the evangelization ministry. Um, And I said, well, you're evangelizing everybody else and, and one person in particular, I don't want to you know, mention any names because people tend to be very private about this and because they're, they're representing something and somebody, they might get judged, oh, wait a minute, you know, you aren't doing it in your own family, so how can you do it on a bigger scale? But the reality is, um, this one person I asked, he said, well, your family thinks they've heard everything you have to say and you have nothing new to tell them. And so we can pray for those St. Ambroses in our children's lives. And it might be Catholic radio. It might be a book. Um, and look for those opportunities, but don't push because you're not. I think you do more 
harm than good because they already heard everything you had to say, or they think they did anyway. And so I pray for those people, those experiences that might be an experience. We know that sometimes some level of suffering, and you know, I've said, I don't know what it's going to take, God, but I trust whatever you have in store that we have to just go along with what God's will is for our children. And it might, it might not be easy, but we have to trust in him and just keep praying. Yes. And as uh, Monica shows, sometimes we play the long game. <laughs> it takes yeah. 17 years of praying. Uh, Roxanne, I, I started off the interview asking Patty about St. Monica in particular. And I'd just like to, as we start to wind down here, ask you, since Monica is the subject of this book, uh, what are the qualities of St. Monica that you most admire, especially in light of the, this topic of uh, you know praying for our, our, our children or loved ones who have left the faith one of the things that i think was very beautiful about her that we learned because you know you just kind of know a couple of things and but as we went deeper into her life she really reached out to the needy she reached out to people all around her she had a really evangelistic heart uh christianity was new but she she was very fervent and even in the years when her own son was departing from the faith she didn't just check out and say, okay, well, you know, I'm done here because this isn't working out, so I'm just going to kind of give up. She was reaching out to all those around her, and ultimately, even though she had a very difficult marriage, and their, and her very difficult mother-in-law lived with them, who was also fighting her faith and kind of scrutinizing it, they both, Patricia and her mother-in-law, came into the faith before they died. They saw a beautiful quality in her and the way she reached out to people with such the heart of Jesus and it inspired and ultimately converted them. And so there's, we can do so much like Patty was saying, um, we don't have to just pine away the, the, the years here while we're waiting and hoping, cause we are waiting and hoping the, the story isn't finished yet with our kids. And that's one of the things we have to take the long view on this and know that it's eternity that we're looking toward here. But in the meantime, what can we do? We can do a lot. And there's a lot of people in our midst that are needing the hope that we have to offer and that Monica can help inspire us to give to others. Yeah, and uh, how cool that we're doing this uh, initial run of this interview uh, on the feast day of St. Monica. So we asked for her her intercession. And just about a minute remaining in our time, uh, Patty Armstrong, Roxanne Salonen, the authors of What Would Monica Do?, published by Ascension Press. Um, Patty, how can um, listeners uh, get the book? Is it in Catholic bookstores? What's the easiest way to, to get a copy? Yes, if it's not in your Catholic bookstore, ask them to get it, and they will. You can get it through Ascension Press's website. Um, and I, I mean, what would Monica do if you look it up? I would. I, I always like people to frequent their local businesses because they, they send their kids to schools, they pay taxes, um, but you can also get it through Ascension Press also. Um, and, and we, as this is the first airing is on the Feast of St. Monica, we had our deadline for turning in the manuscript change a couple times we just worked until we got it done, and we turned it in. And you know what day it was? Hmm. It was the Feast of St. Monica. <laughs> <laughs> we were so surprised, and we really felt like she has journeyed through the writing of the book and is still with us. Yes, amen. Well, thank you both for your time. Uh, clearly, you could tell from the introductions at the beginning that you're both very, very busy. Thanks for all that you do, not only in uh, professionally, but in your uh, raising of your, your children, which, of course, it's a, it's a task that never ends. Even after they become adult, we continue to pray for them. We pray for the intercession of St. Monica herself. 
And uh, please, everybody, pick up a copy of this book, especially if it is something that impacts yourself and your family. What would Monica do? Go to ascensionpress.com slash Monica, ascensionpress.com slash Monica. I've been speaking to Patty Armstrong and Roxanne Salonen, the uh, authors of this uh, wonderful book. Thanks to both of you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Dave. Dave. Yeah. Dave, Monica, pray for us. Amen. (laughs) Amen. And thanks to Cecil for running the board and you listening. And if you have any suggestions uh, for future interviews of the week, we're always looking for suggestions. Uh, You can email me directly at davepalmer at grnonline.com. davepalmer at grnonline.com. This has been the interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. I just love summer. Relaxing on the beach, those crazy triple-digit temperatures, long road trips. Thistle, what are you rambling on about? Summer is coming to an end. It's time to move on to fall. Uh, What's so great about fall? Oh, there's plenty of things. Cooler temperatures, pumpkin spice, fall festivals, and most importantly, September 13th through the 16th, we have our fall share with a theme of It's For Your Soul. And we need to start asking everybody to call in that week with a pledge of support for KTH 910 AM. (gasps) What? How could I forget pumpkin spice? Oh, boy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the KTH 910 AM Interview of the Week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. I'm Dave Palmer. Cecil is running the board, and we love to just tell you about the the good things that are happening here in North Texas and introduce you to to wonderful people that are helping to build up the body of Christ and uh, literally save lives and help mothers. And in this case, it's a returning uh, a couple of guests and a couple of folks that I've gotten to know well and have great respect for. And and uh, they are Mrs. Pat Pelletier and uh, her son, Jim Pelletier. And they are the president and the administrator, respectively, of Mother and Unborn Baby Care uh, out of uh, the city of Fort Worth, the Diocese of Fort Worth. Their website is unbornbabycare.org. And for 38 and a half years, going all the way back to 1984, Mother and Unborn Baby Care has operated a pro-life pregnancy center in Fort Worth. And they've got big, big news, a lot going on, and they need help uh, in, in many, many, many ways. So uh, hence the uh, the interview that we're doing today. So welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, we did this, uh was about two, three years ago? The, the last one, I think it was mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, I 2019, believe. 2019, yes. Yeah, right before everything got crazy. And so here we are, we've uh, weathered the, the big storm. But uh, Pat, let me start with you, because I know it's hard to mention uh, mother and unborn baby care without also referencing your late husband, Chuck, and right. tell us about the whole inspiration for this. Now, they're almost four decades old of, mm. uh, you know, the, what this is and, and why it's important. Okay. Um, Chuck was a uh, military officer uh, when we met and married. Actually, I knew him growing up, but we met again when he was in the service. And uh, we dated until he went to Vietnam when he came back. Um, we married shortly after that. Uh, I got pregnant with our first child. We went, he went back to Vietnam after finishing flight school as a helicopter pilot. He was shot down in Vietnam then, uh, on the 1st of November. Um, we were, uh, uh, informed of his injuries and his, uh, near death on the 3rd of November. And our daughter Lisa was born on the 5th, mm, which was well, a kind of a tough time. Yeah. Um, but he was always always a warrior. He was always looking for another mission, something that 
God wanted him to do because he he survived an unsurvivable crash. So he was wondering what God had in mind for him. So he did a lot of other things first. He did a lot of politics, got to know the people in the church, was on the uh, school board for Monsignor Wolf. And um, so he was visible. People saw him in church all the time in his wheelchair. He was confined to a wheelchair. And so, um, but when our daughter Jennifer was born, the month that uh, Roe v. Wade was proclaimed, and it was a shock to both of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we kept getting nudged towards pro-life. And then finally we met this guy, Bob Pearson, who had a methodology for these pregnancy centers that allowed you to have a neutral outreach, attracted women who had already made a decision that they wanted to have an abortion, and uh, had videos and, and um, information about the development of the baby. It was a question and answer video. And at one point, the... Uh, questioner said what are the different methods of abortion and uh so we we kind of fell into that method feeling like it was going to be very successful if we could just get things settled and and we did we found a place to rent we found volunteers who were excited to be a part of it even though it was kind of confrontational uh women would come to us thinking that they were going to have an abortion and when they found out they weren't they weren't always happy but over the years, there were eight, 9,000 babies that were saved by wow. the time he died. And he knew who they were. They would bring them back. He was very, um, very happy to see them when they'd bring their babies in. And that's kind of how we got involved. And it was his mission. It was his new war. And he fought it all the way up until the day that he went into the hospital um, for his final sickness. Um and we certainly couldn't let that go. He died after about seven weeks in the hospital. And I just stepped in and took over. Uh, I don't, mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder still if that was a mistake. But no, we're, we're doing well now. We have still most of the same counselors that we had at that point. Um, and I met a man by the name of Harry Gallagher one day after I'd been praying in adoration and asking God to tell me why I was still here and Chuck was gone and what my mission was supposed to be. I met Harry, and Harry said, you know, I, I could buy that property next door to Whole Women's Health Abortion Clinic, but I don't know what to do with it. And I said, well, if you buy the property, I'll move the center. Mm. It was very simple. And uh, so I knew what the mission was that God wanted us to uh, succeed at. The problem was that about that time when we bought it and we... Um, demolished the house that was on it and we had sat with the architect and had the drawings and everything and then along came covid Mm, and it was two years before we could get permits to go on because the development people were working from home it was very difficult so it was difficult to fundraise because you do that by gathering people together and during covid for two years that didn't happen and it was difficult to uh, get the permits. So when we finally did get the permits and started the building, and the fun thing about that was I turned 75 this year, and on my 75th birthday, when I went down to the center, there was uh, across the street from us, used to be the abortion clinic where Chuck and I started. Mm. On my birthday, they demolished the building. Oh, praise God. And then I went to the new site, and on my birthday, they poured the foundation. <laughs> so it was the end of one era yeah. and the beginning of the next. Yeah, yeah. So 
we're building now, and they're at the point where the outside is being bricked. Everything is, oh, it's all coming together, yeah. which is um, wonderful and exciting and really beautiful, really a beautiful building, thanks to our architect. I saw the picture that you posted on Facebook, and beautiful? I was so blown away. Yeah. And, and I immediately said, we need to do an interview. And, I know. Oh. <laughs> and uh, Jim, let me bring you in the conversation. I think okay. you said in 1984 you were six years old. Six okay? years old. So this has really been your life. It, it, and I know, uh, many, you know some of your siblings, and it just seems like this whole mission that your mom and dad started is, 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 it kind of runs through your blood. And I know you're so passionate about this, but tell us what mother and unborn baby care means to you, especially you were kind of introduced to it at a, a very young age. Well, and we were certainly those, my brothers and sisters, we were introduced to it at a very, very early age. But I think the, the consequence of that was that it was, uh, mundane. Mm-hmm. It, it was just, a part of what my parents did. And it wasn't until I left and in 99, I left and joined the army and spent a couple of decades away doing my own thing. And, and when I left the army in uh, 2013, I, I went through a few different jobs that kept me close to the military community and the law enforcement community. And, and what I was trying to do, I think was maintain that fraternity and maintain that mission. But there's something about it. I know that my dad felt the same way is that when you strip off that uniform, you strip off your identity mm-hmm. and that lack of purpose, that lack of identity that results from taking that uniform off is what eventually led me to where we are today. And, uh, and I remember I was between different jobs and I was sitting at my dad's desk helping out with some administrative tasks for the center uh, and helping to kind of modernize how we could accept donations and things like that. And I was, I was sitting there and I had this thought of, well, why aren't you just doing this? Why isn't this what you do? Mm-hmm. And I sat back and I, I thought for a second, I said, okay, well, if this is what you want me to do, I will do this full time until something else happens, mm-hmm. until I find something else. And, that, and, in, and I'm not the kind of person who talks much about having you know, epiphanies or, or super religious emotional experiences because this was my first and it was at that moment, after accepting that, after submitting to that, that the that lack of identity, that purposelessness, that kind of stifling, who are you if you don't have the title? Yeah. Who are you if you're not Sergeant Pelletier, if you're not you know, leading and mentoring and training men and leading them into combat? Who are you? And that lifted off my shoulders in the same way that it feels, you know, carry a heavy backpack for several hours and you take it off and you feel like you're floating. And that's exactly the feeling that I had sitting there. Mm-hmm. And that's what brought me to, to where I am today. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, it's almost like you're you're carrying on the the mission. You and your father both have military backgrounds, and mm-hmm. so there's there's a, there's a great parallel there. That, that that's well, there's kind a, of hard and there's not a to parallel notice. that's important there too, because it is a, a. My father was nothing if not strategic, and his understanding of uh, how to accomplish things was was planned and prepared and uh, and very thorough in a very military strategic fashion. And that's one of those things that I inherited and then was able to develop through my military career. And it prepared me for uh, the kind of challenges set forward and the kind of uh, everything with having a, a background in process improvement and a background in having that material and managerial and, and uh, administrative skills uh, and then sliding into the systems and processes that were developed by my dad with the yeah. same mindset. It's very easy for me to step into it. And, 
you know, I, I appreciate the labels he put on everything. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just put it that way because that's the way I would have done yeah. it too. You know, Pat, you mentioned the significance of Roe v. Wade back January 1973 and how mm-hmm. that the impact that that had on Chuck and you uh, and what you're doing now. Now Roe v. Wade is has been overturned. And so uh, I know this is something that, you know, may be frustrating in a sense because people may think like, ah, we're done, you know, and here you are in the middle of this project. Explain to our listeners, and Jim, you can jump in as well, uh, why it's it's just as important, if not more so, than when Roe v. Wade was in effect for, for a center like this to exist. Well, and we're neutral outreach. So I, I think that People think there's not going to be anybody looking for an abortion because it's illegal in Texas. But over the last couple of weeks, we've seen five women who have come to us saying, I need an abortion. I want an abortion. And, uh, and it's a surprise to them that, they, that they can't get it or they want us to send them to New Mexico where they can get it. So they're mm-hmm. looking for funding. Uh, Catholic Charities brought a woman to us who was, uh, wanting an abortion, which, you know, is, kind of a strange thought that she would have gone to Catholic yeah. Charities. But uh, it's it's a lack of understanding on the people who are out there. They unless I think sometimes unless you're really involved in this as a as your life, you don't know about it. I, which is strange for me because that's it's the whole of my life almost. And uh, so I really am aware that, that abortion is illegal in Texas right now. But that's right now. Mm-hmm. That's not forever. It's been returned to the 50 states. Every single election is going to have an impact on whether or not you can get an abortion in Texas. Every mm-hmm. election. So this is a constant battle. And it can be overturned in just a few months' time. Yeah. And then we're back to where we were so I think that that's one thing that we all need to keep in in uh, in our minds as we go forward. And those women, we're building next to a place where they did 500 abortions a month. Every single month, that was an average, 500 abortions a month. So where are those women now? There's still going to be 500 who would have them if the doors were open in mm-hmm. that place. We're right next door. I'm praying that they come by and look and come in our door and we can help those 500 every single month. We'll also have offices for 40 Days for Life and Sidewalk Advocates in that place so we can work in concert with each other in a much better way. Uh, we're having a meeting this weekend for 40 days at, at our little center down on Pennsylvania and there's room for maybe 10 people. But in the new facility, we'll have room for anyone who wants to attend. So it, all of that comes into play. But most of all, I think it, people are just unaware of the fact that those people are going to need help. Those 500 women now are going to need help. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm hoping that they all show up at our door and we can help them. But it needs more stenography, more counseling rooms, more... Uh, more of everything out of that place, and uh, and we need to finish building it. Yes, it's mother important. and unborn baby care is uh, the topic we're talking about. Mrs. Pat Pelletier and uh, her son Jim, they're president and administrator of uh, mother and unborn baby care, and uh, the website unbornbabycare dot org. Jim, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh no worries. Uh, one thing that I think we have to look at is that this is a it's a two level fight. We have always been at the intimate individual level we have been at the the business of saving that baby this baby 
being a channel of grace for this woman and for this child. The, the other side of that fight is at the legal aspect of it, the, the lobby aspect of it. And what mom said is exactly right. This last general election for president, for the first time since Ann Richards, Tarrant County was blue. Mm-hmm. And that's something to consider. Yeah. That's something to remember. That we are this close, truly this close to having the state of Texas turn blue. Yeah. At yeah. which point this law will change. Not only in that aspect, but the fact that all it takes is one judge, one judge for an injunction. The first time that we considered building next door to this uh, whole women's health clinic, uh, back when my dad was still alive, the reason that we stopped was because of the passage of House Bill 2, which required any abortion clinic to have, uh, the doctors had to have admitting privileges in local hospitals, and the, the buildings had to be established and set up as uh, outpatient surgical centers. And so when we asked one of our partners at the the state legal level, should we go forward with this? We were told, no, This uh, just hang back and wait. This is going to shut them down. Mm-hmm. Within weeks, they had an injunction from a judge, and they were right back to business as usual. Yeah. So yeah. we are that close. We are that close. Uh, Dallas County just released a, one of their uh, district attorneys who refused to prosecute anything under the trigger ban. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's not it's not a cut and dry legal fight as uh, as it as it would seem. You know, people assume that oh, Roe v. Wade's the decision abortion is now illegal in the state of Texas. It's done and done and moving forward. This is not a constitutional amendment to the state of Texas's constitution, yeah, right? Yeah. The uh, the previous law prior to 1973 in the state of Texas has been essentially um, superseded by the trigger ban, but they wouldn't even enforce that previous law in the 30-day period after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Mm-hmm. So it's not a cut and dry fight. Yeah, that's uh, well explained, and uh, the, the the need uh, continues to be quite great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat, tell us. Uh, I'm just looking at the clock here. We're down to about seven eight minutes. I want to mm-hmm. make sure we get in. Uh, you know, how can people help? What are the biggest needs? I know you stress that this is missionary work. Uh, the, the typical listener right now is saying, you know, I'd like to do what I can, volunteer, give money, pray. What, what can they do and what are the needs? Well, first of all, pray. That's, that's the most that anybody can do. I'm, I used to say it's the least you can do is pray, but Bishop Olson has corrected me many times. <laughs> no, it's the most, the most you can do. <laughs> so please pray. Yeah. And finances are our biggest need right now. We are uh, seeing a smaller number of people. And we have what we need as far as their needs, but when we have to pay bills and then pay invoices for uh, building this building, then we are short on finances. So finances are the biggest need there. Um, yes, it is missionary territory. I think that this is an opportunity. We've we've looked for the people who could just write us a check for a million dollars and then it's over. But I don't think that's what God wants. Mm-hmm. I think it would be wonderful, and I keep promising him, even if we got all the money, we would still put it in front of everyone to help. This is missionary territory. This is God's opportunity for us to invest our talents, whether they be abilities or monies, and then to stand in front of him at judgment and say, I did everything I could do. And I'd like to hear him say to all of us, you know, come, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was under threat and you saved me. And I think that's a big part of what he wants. And I think he wants it put out there in front of all of us to have the opportunity to invest our talents. It's not often that you can do that and come back with 
eternal returns on yeah. your investment with with souls with souls that have been created by his hand and who each one changes the entire universe for all eternity. Yeah. And I think that's the important part. And you all have been creative in your fundraising efforts. I know a couple of weeks ago you had a little shindig, an Irish you know, concert and fundraiser. I understand it went really well. The Behan uh, Band played. It was at St. Patrick's. Uh, do you know, tell us about that and maybe any you know, future ideas you have for well, we raising were, funds. We were blessed to have, a, and I'm sure that a lot of the listeners here are going to know who the Behan Band is and at least know some of the Behans, but uh, we were approached by them. They said that don't have a whole lot of money to give you, but we can certainly uh, play for you. And we said, okay, well, let's make it happen. And in a period of about a month, we were able to uh, slap this thing together with the uh, the support of St. Patrick's Cathedral, who paid for a considerable portion of it, and, uh, completely pro bono, and, and as their donation to us. And then the Behan band themselves uh, made a donation on stage. So. It was very successful, and it was a it was an intimate event. It was uh, thrown together rather quickly, but was ex- executed extremely well. And the folks that we had were were wonderful. They had a a really good time, and they were very generous. And they helped us, uh, you know, chip away at that now nine hundred thousand dollars that we still need to complete. Yeah, you know, we uh, we talked about having started this in two thousand nineteen, and we were here for an interview then. And uh, in the interview w- room with us was Harry Gallagher and uh, Pat Price and, and some other folks. And uh, looking from where we were there, where we were looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of $950,000 from start to finish, uh, the COVID labor and, par- and uh, materials increases that we've seen and the inflation still ongoing with both labor and material costs has pushed us up to $1.513 million for, mm. towards completion. So the nearly half of the cost, that, or more than half of the cost that we had raised by 2020, turned to less than a third of the cost by now. And that's what we're trying to uh, recoup at this point. And so the event was wonderful, mm-hmm. and it helps us chip away at those things. And like Mom said, we could... I'm sure that it's possible that somebody could write us a check for that full amount, and that would be wonderful. But even in that event, we would not stop fundraising mm-hmm. because yeah. it is our responsibility to present ourselves as uh, channels for grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just such a, a overwhelming, I mean, amazing consideration of the work that y'all are doing. And, you know, Pat and Jim, we talked about this before we started recording about just the value of one life. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you all would in Chuck would have done this if one life had been saved, because it's not just one mm-hmm. life. It's the, the children they would have or the vocation they would have or the lives that they would touch. And it's mind boggling to think about the, and, and it must be so gratifying to be in this work of saving lives and helping women, helping families. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I'd, the, um, couple of months after Chuck died, I was down at the center. I went down there often for consolation and, uh, one of the women who was there came out to me and asked me, she said, what about the, the guy in the wheelchair? What happened to him? He, he helped me years ago. And of course she was crying when I told her that, uh, that he had passed away. Well, she, uh, she said, you don't understand. She said, 29 years ago, my husband and I came to this center and we wanted an abortion. We were newly married. We were just not ready for a baby. There was no problem. We just didn't want the responsibility. And he sat us down and talked to us and changed our mind. And she said, so 29 years ago, we had a baby girl. She's the only child we were ever able to conceive in our marriage. 
we could never have anymore. And uh, she's she's now married herself, and she has five, given us five grandchildren. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so I said to her, so <clears throat> he saved not only your baby, but her babies, you know, yeah, and yeah. then those babies, and then those babies all the way down. Because if you look back... Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth. Catholic Radio for your soul in North Texas on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone.